This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for August 15th, 2019, the Public Charge Edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am not in Washington, not in New York. I'm actually in my brother's dining room in Boston, Massachusetts, because it's that kind of year. And joining me from somewhere, I saw her yesterday, so she's probably in New Haven. I saw her in New Haven, is Emily Bazelon of Yale and the New York Times. Yes, indeed. I am still in New Haven where you left me. I hope you're not where I left you, which was like in your house. You're probably in a studio. I'm in the Yale studio, my my happy place for recording. And John is still still trying to uh, negotiate peace in Europe. And so he is not with us. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. Because we have Josie Duffy Rice, who is now the president of The Appeal. We have a president on our show. <laughs> Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, and Josie's joining us from Sea Island, Georgia. Yes. That means that she too has a kind of vacation mode. It's going to be a vacation mode kind of gab fest, even though the news is totally dire. So maybe it won't be that vacationy. On today's gab fest, we're going to talk about the obscene new effort by the Trump administration to restrict legal immigrants by punishing them for taking, accepting, using public benefits. Then we're going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein's suicide and the cloud that it put over, well, just about everyone in the whole country, apparently, or every man in the whole country. Then, oh, and actually one woman, too. Then Trump's (laughs) on again, off again, China tariffs and the recession risk that we face. What is going on with the economy? How disastrous this is likely to be for the U.S. and for the world, and what effect will it have on the election. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter and a reminder that we are coming to the Twin Cities for our first live show in Minnesota. We're going to be at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Wednesday, September 18th. There's still tickets available. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that show on Wednesday, September 18th at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, Minnesota. Here's an actual line from an actual real-life Trump official this week. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. That, of course, was Ken Cuccinelli, who is the acting director of the USCIS, the uh, folks who deal with citizenship and immigration. For the Trump administration, the administration has escalated its really vicious war on immigration Uh, that now going after legal immigrants with a radical new interpretation of an old law. So Emily, what, what is going on? What's the law that's, that's being reinterpreted? What is the Trump administration trying to do? And, uh, if you think it's as outrageous as I do, which I bet you do, why is it outrageous? The original version of this law actually dates from the 1880s, around the same time as the Chinese Exclusion Act, which could 
give you some idea about the origins here. And, you know, since the 1880s, we've had some provision in immigration law for preventing people from becoming naturalized or citizens if they could be a public charge to the country. And originally, there was this sort of old-fashioned language about being an idiot or a pauper or a convict. And again, you can see the kind of what's like the underlying concern here. It's about burdening the country with undesirable people. This statute was updated in the 1960s uh, and then also reinterpreted more recently in a way that meant that that we were having a very limited application of it. And so if you were in the country legally, if you had a green card, you were applying to be naturalized, you were trying to get a green card, the government would only block you if more than half your income was coming from traditional welfare. And I'm talking about temporary assistance for needy families, the TANF program, or SSI, which is the benefits for people who are disabled. If, As long as you didn't fall into that category of more than half your income coming from one of those programs, then we didn't hold it against you when we were thinking about letting you stay, what your income was, whether you had other kinds of public benefits like Medicaid or WIC, the program for women um, when their children are first born. In other words, we were able to recognize that immigrants may need some kind of temporary leg up when they get here, but that doesn't mean they're going to be a public charge, like a burden in the long run. What the Trump administration has done is issue this very long, it has more than 800 pages rule, creating all these new categories for keeping people from staying or keeping people out in the first place based on this kind of conjecture about whether they're going to cost some money to the government in the short or the long term. It seems like there are lots of reasons people could be deemed to be public charges and that a lot of it is like speculation as opposed to how they're really using benefits. Uh, And the problem with this, of course, is that lots of immigrants need some temporary help, but as a group, they contribute much more in the end than they take. And this is also just obviously so at odds with our whole tradition of immigrant strivers and the notion that people get here and they have all kinds of qualities that helps them succeed in the longer term. And it's really just about shaming people for poverty, however temporary. Uh, And so I guess I'll end on that as like my answer to why this is so troubling. Josie, in the I think in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the percentage of people who were rejected for this public charge standard was in the high teens. I think it was 17%. And then changes made during both the Clinton administration and then I think more recently have reduced that number to around 1%. So it's very, very few people have been denied green cards or citizenship because of the possibility or the likelihood they would be public charges. So do we know sort of from a philosophical perspective, like, is there a correct number? Is 1% a correct number? Is 17% a correct number? Is 50% a correct number? Is there any case that you could make if you're a Trump official that, oh, we've got, we've become way too lenient about this? Well, I mean, I think if you're a Trump official, if you're working in this administration, right, to quote Adam Serwer, that cruelty is kind of the point. And so this actually isn't about the percentage or the number. It's about the fact that they are instituting more strict regulations around something where they have the right to sort of predict how much um, 
how much how many resources uh, an immigrant they think is going to use even if they haven't done it yet. So what we're seeing is both like the predictive factor, which is unscientific and the stats they are using are inaccurate and just is a complete open door to um, more racism and classism from this from this administration. But we're it's it's also just such a perversion of um, power um, and a, a, a manipulation of what is supposed to be a country that has a good faith understanding of what it takes to move to a new um, country and make it right. And so I don't think that the number is the point. I think the intention um, is so, so important here. And when we're talking about Stephen Miller creating immigration policy, um, there's there's so rarely anything good that can possibly come out of that. I mean, it's 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 an outrageous standard. It's absolutely outrageous. So a majority of Americans use some form of these public benefits in the in their life. It is part of the life cycle, especially if you're an immigrant, if you've come with very few resources. It makes perfect sense that you would want to take advantage of this so that you could be able to provide housing and food and and medical care for yourself and your and your loved ones. And it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's disgusting and dehumanizing to 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 create this standard, which is the only people who are entitled, who who are who deserve to be here are people who don't, you know, need these things, which are basic human needs. Everyone needs food, everyone needs housing, everyone needs health care. And it it's it's just it's simply you know, vile. And, and, and Josie, to pile on to your point, the fact that it isn't even an absolute standard, it's something which is based on a likelihood. It's something that a, a, an official can, can determine on their own uh, based on how they feel that day. If they, you know, if they themselves have uh, low blood sugar or something, it's, um, it's very sinister and malevolent. And it's part of this entire movement of dehumanization that we've seen out of this administration, out of out of a lot of the Republican Party. In fact, frankly, when you think about how they treat ex-felons, how they treat people who've crossed the border uh, without papers, it's it is it's really disgusting. Can we also just have a moment of reserving, like particular? Um Distress for Ken Cuccinelli, uh, who is the current head of UC, what's it called? USCIS. This is like our customs and immigration service at the moment, the part of the INS that the old INS that deals with these issues. You know, he's like wrecking the Statute of Liberty inscription by talking about how we only want your tired and your poor if they can stand on their own two feet. And then when Aaron Burnett of CNN challenged him he about, you know, how the nation's tradition of taking people like certainly like my uh, great grandparents who came here with nothing, uh, you know, he says like, well, those were Europeans as if that is different from, um, you know, taking poor people from other parts of the world who oh, just happen not to be white. I mean, there is just this again, this like willingness to talk about white ethno-nationalism as an acceptable basis for discriminating against people from other parts of the world. And, you know, what's really going on here is this underlying struggle for minority rule. And what I mean by minority is white conservatives afraid that people coming to this country who are not white are not going to continue voting for conservative candidates and for the Republican Party. And it's really about 
trying to prevent the country's demographics from changing. Josie, one of the things that's striking about this regulation, as opposed to the most of the rest of the Trump war on immigration and immigrants, is that it is targeted against people who are here legally. This has nothing to do with their, you know, with the invasions they love to to talk about over at Stephen Miller's office. It's a way in particular of keeping families apart because the people who are most likely to be affected by this are people who are coming in some form of family unification as well as people coming in the green card lottery. What do you make of this shift from from immigration as, oh, we have to prevent an illegal abuse of our system to now being one, which is we have to prevent anybody coming here who's not a white European, that is, who's not Norwegian? Well, right. I mean... it's so much of this is about race, right? So much of this is about ethnicity, but a lot of it is also about class and the fact that what they're basically saying is that we only want you here if you are rich, if you you know have already had the benefits that you might be looking for, the opportunity that you might be looking for in coming to to a place like America. And I think you know ultimately this this really highlights the Trump administration and and really all 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 conservatives or the con, I guess the Republican Party right now. Um, their perspective on what is what is taking and what is giving, right? What is investment and what is um, welfare? This idea that all these people are doing, all these legal Im- immigrants or immigrants at all are doing is taking from us is so so out of line with what the data says. It's so out of line with our understanding of what it means to invest in people as long as they're the right people. And it ignores sort of the public benefits that conservatives and the right and people with means are receiving from this country in every every single day, all the time, in every way. This idea that like these people are just living off of our hard work, right? Um, or, or citizens' hard work is just so... Uh, so disproven by the data and 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 such an indication of the racism and again the just pure hatred for poor people that kind of drives this kind of policy to follow up on that a little bit josie one of the things that was again so freaking demoralizing with these people uh is the the raids that were done in mississippi in this past about past week where about 700 people who were here in undocumented way working illegally uh, were swept up and will be deported and their families broken up. And were the employers who were benefiting from that, the employers who were knowingly hiring people in this way, punished or at all chastised? No, not at all. The Trump administration has, has stopped any kind of uh, any kind of attempt to restrain the employers who are the ones who are in a way most responsible for it. And instead, it's just like, oh, let's just let's just hurt the poor people who are actually doing the work. Yeah. And you see this kind of all the time. Um in the criminal justice system as well, right? The way that we criminalize poverty. It's worse to steal a beer from the 7-Eleven than it is to cheat your employees out of their wages. Um, Really only one of those um, traditionally has been seen as theft and the other one has been seen as, you know, a licensing issue or a business regulation issue instead of an actual question of following the law. You know, these employers in in the years past before these raids were threatening um, their employees allegedly and not allowing them to kind of get the to not following any sort of labor regulations under the threat of if you complain we'll have you deported and that sort of um, the 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 dual the, the ability to take advantage of a system that does not protect undocumented immigrants while also having the politics of saying that you don't actually want them there is just such a 
such a remarkable manipulation and hypocrisy um, that you that you see from not just the employers in Mississippi, right? But that happens nationwide. I mean, the the raid itself is unusual, but the way that these employees were treated is not. Can I ask a question that's a little bit off topic, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately in the wake of this just like sloshing of, um, you know, racist rhetoric and um, actions like this one from the Trump administration. I've just been worrying more and more that as reprehensible as I find these policy choices and you do too, that they are not going to move the part of the electorate that – would need to move in order to uh, elect a different president, at least if you buy into the notion that it's the Rust Belt states and um, voters in those states that are going to determine this election. It's self-contested. But let's just go with this thesis that, you know, there have to be some people who voted for Trump or uh, stayed home who need to show up. And this whole question of just like making the country care about the more um, obvious racist rhetoric and actions that we're seeing. Like, is there is there a way to talk about the underlying concerns here that makes white Americans who are pretty numb to this stuff actually, like, care about it more? Um, or, you know, in the calling out and denouncing of it, are we just like – alienating people who feel then like they're getting implicated um, because like they've already bought into enough of this that if they really stop and think about what's happening, then they're just going to have to feel bad about their own choices. I just keep worrying that, you know, Trump is onto something that he's kind of reinforcing some white Americans kind of willingness to just be numb or kind of um, countenance the whole thing, like leave it, leave it alone. And, and that it, I don't know, just, it's not that, I mean, I think it's really important to cover this issue. And maybe this particular question isn't the one that lends itself to my concerns. But I'm just worried about this idea of like amplifying racial division, which Trump seems to be trying to capitalize on right now. You know, I wonder, so I've, two thoughts about that. The first is that I don't know at this point if we morally have an, um, an option to to do anything but respond um, strongly to Trump's racist, not only his rhetoric, but his policies. But I think to your point, it's interesting to imagine what would have to happen, right? What kind of atrocities would have to happen for people to abandon their support of him? And it's, you know, it's kind of like classic this classic psychology thing of, you know, I'm a good person, so I can't be okay with bad things. And if I'm okay with this, it must not be a bad thing. But there's this other kind of political philosophy question that I keep thinking of, which is this party of quote unquote, small government is sitting by as as the administration flouts every rule and breaks every, you know, it has has really no consideration for the rule of law or or even tradition in this country, um, and why that isn't more alarming. And the reality is because when people talk about big government, they're really talking about that they don't want to pay taxes. They're not actually as concerned with big government acting in a big government way if it doesn't directly affect them. Yeah, I mean, Emily, I think the when you and I were in New Haven, we talked about this, that, that the real 
strong political argument for President Trump's opponents is going to be around competence and the incompetence and the chaos and the kind of embarrassment. But that the the on a lot of the actual policy provisions, uh, especially I think especially I think where it comes to immigration, it's not a winning political issue. That doesn't mean that you know we aren't morally obligated to try to stop it and morally obligated to stand against it. Um, but it, it it may well not cause any gain when it comes to the election. And then rather, if you, you, you think, if you think the highest goal is to win the election, then you look for things which really do make the president look stupid, look embarrassed, look, look bad at his job. And I don't think that this particular form of regulation uh, and this particular line of attack is going to, is going to be that, but you know, they're, there you fight different battles at different times and for different reasons. Yeah, that seems right to me. And also thinking about this policy choice is totally legitimate for more reasons and also because it's actually going to affect a lot of people, right? I mean, it's not one of those moments where like there's a lot of lefty outrage over like a photo op or um, you know, one kind of stray bit of rhetoric. Like this is actually going to really hurt a lot of people. Some of them are going to be um, barred from citizenship or entry. Some of them are going to drop their benefits out of fear. So yes, yeah, they worked on this. They spent time on this. They wrote 837 pages. That's not right. That's, that's yes, a real and that's another really good point. Yeah, because, you know, part of what happened when Stephen Miller got started on the travel ban was that it was done in such a ham-handed way that it was easy for the courts to say, no, you didn't follow the rules. But when you see an 837-page rule like this, then you think, oh, these people went through notice and comment. They probably now have wised up to enough of the procedures um, that are necessary for federal rules to survive judicial review that, like, this one very may well hold up. And that is about the power of the executive and the importance of elections. I think your point about the chaos, too, is is, is totally right, that there's a sense of this eventually becoming um, so exhausting for the day-to-day, even his supporters. The fact that Trump is so unpredictable um, and so vitriolic and, um, frankly, just so vengeful and unwilling to kind of follow any any sort of traditional presidential path um, in terms of behavior and also likes to be the center of attention, right? It it really highlights just how much time we spend thinking about the president in a way that feels somewhat unprecedented to me, at least in the past few generations, of just the me- mental space he takes up, I think, regardless of what party you're in. Um, and how Ideally, right, you wouldn't have to think about the president every single day. You could sort of live your life and hope they had the best interest in, at heart. And the the fact that they were not causing a lot of commotion would be a good thing. But it, I mean, one of the of many things that scares me about 2020 is just the idea of former years of this, right? This kind of the, the mental real estate he takes up. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments, of course, on the GabFest and other Slate podcast today on Slate Plus. The case for and against Sherentine. I'm not really sure what the case for and against Sherentine the cases are, so I'm excited to have the Slate Plus segment and Emily and Josie are going to enlighten me about Sherentine and what what it is. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be amazing. There's going to be a lot of talk of Instagram, I think, and Facebook <laughs> and other platforms. 
Go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, or did he, in the Metropolitan Correctional Center, a federal jail in Manhattan. He had attempted suicide three weeks earlier. He'd been taken off suicide watch. His roommate had been removed from his cell. The guards were asleep. They lied about checking on him. Uh, and lo and behold, the 66-year-old um, sexual predator, pedophile, all-around vile human being seems to have killed himself. Or maybe he didn't kill himself. I don't know. Pick your conspiracy theory today in the newspaper. There's suggestions that he broke bones that are usually not broken when you hang yourself, but are broken when you're strangled. So we'll see. Um, Emily, first of all, just like, should we deal with conspiracy theories? Should we think he was he was possibly killed or or is it is the suicide sufficient explanation? Look, I mean, I am <laughs> just the way I'm starting this out. I You can tell I sound a little confused and torn. I think for me, the crucial question here is why Epstein was taken off suicide watch. And it may be that that is a terrible choice that reflects like the terrible policies at this prison, um, MCC, which has all kinds of problems historically and uh, is not an exemplary place like many prisons or jails. It's really dangerous. So it may be that what went wrong here is not nefarious. But it is also true that this is a situation in which, given how high profile Epstein was, I don't think it's enough to just say, like, it is terrible that lots of people commit suicide in jails and uh, and to assume that this was a normal case, if that is even the right word to use, because it just seems like they should have been keeping kind some kind of special eye on him, especially since he'd had this previous suicide attempt. And like I said, it was such a high-profile case. So, I mean, what got my attention was that the Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, said that, 
you know, she was really surprised that this had happened. Now, again, that could be about like a policy choice gone wrong or just the internal rules of the prison. I don't want to like go down the conspiracy road without any evidence. But I do think it's really important to investigate what happened here. And I I can't rule out foul play uh, from the get go, given. Right. It's like it's a situation in which you want to be open to the possibility of some kind of evidence emerging of a conspiracy. And and even if you're not going to, like, start believing in it without that evidence. So, yeah, I would I mean, in Jeffrey Epstein's entire sort of story, right, his history, sort of where did he come from? How did he make this money? Who did he know? Um, who was also implicated? He has this like entire sort of mysterious, just very dark uh, history. And so the way it it's it seems fitting to me that um, this is the way his story kind of ended. And also it doesn't it. I obviously understand why um, it looks uh it looks like we're not getting the whole story that was my initial reaction to and i wouldn't be surprised if there was more here i do find it um interesting i, I the attorney general talking about how he was appalled and and um found what happened to jeffrey epstein to be sort of unbelievable was shocking to me because it's actually not surprising that there weren't eyes on him all the time. And part of that is just because there aren't enough people in a lot of these prisons, not enough staff to handle the kind of shocking numbers of people that are are being thrown into jail every day, um, even on the federal level. So it's, it is, I mean, to me, both things seem totally possible. um, But it really does highlight the lack of oversight of people who need it. In, in these facilities uh, and actually addressing people who might be suicidal and suffering from real mental health issues. I mean, suicide is shockingly common in American criminal justice system. The Department of Justice has not released data on this since 2016, which I assume is some form of Trump administration, just like we don't really care about government data. But if you look back at the data from 2014 and before, there are just a ton of suicides. People try to kill themselves and succeed in killing themselves at a very high rate, which is not surprising because they're desperate and they're, you know, all, you know, most people who are being locked up are young men who are at a very high suicide risk anyway. Um, it's not surprising when someone tries to kill themselves and or even succeeds in killing themselves in prison. It's also not surprising when people just die in a terrible way in prison because there's, did you guys look at this article that was in our research of just 32, 32 other prison deaths horrifying prison deaths some murder some suicide some guard neglect some people dying you know because they didn't get insulin i mean just the indifference uh and the dehumanization of prisoners is pretty shocking under certain circumstances and it sounds like the mcc is a as a facility was one that didn't uh put prisoner welfare at the top middle uh or anywhere really on the list of things that that the staff and guards are taken care of. One thing also to keep in mind is that it's not just prisons, right? It's not just correctional facilities. It's jails in particular where the suicide rate is remarkably high. Um, and that is notable because it, about 80% of the people who commit suicide in jail are haven't been convicted of anything yet. This is pre-trial, right? And so you see this epidemic of people who are spending significantly less time in a jail than the peop- than you know the average person spends in a prison. Um, but the suicide rate, I think, is two and a half, three times as high. And you know, it is very, it 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 just is another demonstration of how little all correctional facilities care and protect the people in their care. You know, the idea of 
these places as being sort of the new mental health facilities, the, pla- the just holding cells for people going through any sort of public struggle um, is so, I guess, uh, it, it just is so tragic that we can't actually ensure that people can even live decide to live through an experience like spending a week or two in jail because that's just how um, horrible it is and how poor our, our health care system is in these facilities. I was just talking about a form to um, Nora Jackson, who's one of the people in my book who experienced jail in prison about this very issue. And she was pointing out that one of the problems with jail. So first of all, it's this very destabilizing moment where your life has come crashing down. And also there's such churn. It's not a place where you settle into routine, where you necessarily find friends or some kind of like touchstones of a community. It's a place where things are constantly shifting around. And that can make it even more dangerous. Emily, what do you think is going to happen with the Epstein case, with his death? Because obviously he can now not be criminally charged. He cannot be a witness. It's going to be harder to get him to testify against other people. Uh, he, he took to his grave tons of secrets and tons of evidence, presumably. Uh, is this something where where there, this the investigation does need to continue with the, the same uh, radiance and and might or where you just be like well you know we got to wrap this one up because we we lost the the main guy here well that's a really good question it is certainly going to make things much more complicated there's going to be um a lot of fighting over civil forfeiture or criminal forfeiture case um involving his estate where the government will presumably try to take a lot of his money but it's easier to do that when you have a criminal conviction which now will be absent actually can i can i interrupt and ask a question there yes which is does his suicide make the presumption of guilt, does that increase your ability to collect from him or decrease it? I mean, obviously, you don't get the criminal conviction, but is there some sense like, well, this guy killed himself to avoid culpability, so we're going we're gonna to weigh that as we consider whether his estate can go to these victims or not? I mean, that will be up to the judge, but as a sort of... Forget about Jeffrey Epstein for a minute. In another case, you wouldn't necessarily want a suicide to be a presumption of guilt, right? right? I mean, right. we think of Epstein as a monster, <laughs> right. uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. But like, if you were making a rule that was not just about Jeffrey Epstein, you would get worried about that kind of presumption. So, I mean, the government is going to have to prove something about they're going to try to put on evidence about what they could have proven right to get over this hump but we don't necessarily want the judge coming into this thinking like well this guy killed himself to get off we want the government to have to show that he was likely guilty the other problem is the suits the victims are going to be bringing they also are not going to have a conviction um, as they try to get compensation from him. And then there's the question of, you know, accomplice liability and other people who have no one else has been charged in this case. There's been a ton of bad press for Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's ex-girlfriend, who there are lots of allegations was, you know, procuring underage girls and young women for him. And there are other names kind of swirling around with accusations, too. It's possible that there'll be some documents in these raids of Epstein's properties uh, that have been going on that will help the government bring those kinds of charges without his testimony. But you certainly imagine that, like, he went to his grave with information that he could have provided that would have implicated other people. Do you think, Josie, that we're that there is ever going to be anything that sticks on the people who are his accomplices 
on the Ghislaine Maxwells, on the people like Prince Andrew or Alan Dershowitz who've been accused of of gross behavior? Do you think that we're going to end with a jurisprudential decision against them or this is just going to be vagueness and and doubt? Obviously, the intensity and the urgency of this of this case is now reduced significantly because they're not trying to bring, you know, they're not going to put him on trial. They don't have a June 2020 date, which was sort of the original thought of when this trial would happen. Um, it really does put into question, obviously, what happens to the people that have been accused. And the, and the real problem, I mean, we see this a lot in cases that have to do with sexual assault, sexual traffic, um, sex trafficking, and in any sort of situation where the evidence against him, since we're talking about something that happens in 2002, um, and especially the evidence against the other people that have been implicated, there's not physical evidence, right? There's the narrative of these women, which I believe, but that's not often enough to actually convict someone in, in a criminal case, and especially someone who's kind of a minor player in this, or a, a, a more minor player, like a Alan Dershowitz um, versus the main player himself, Jeffrey Epstein. So it's it's possible, uh, given the sort of the attention that this case has gotten and the outrage that people feel over his suicide, it's an uphill battle for um, for prosecutors and for the criminal justice system to hold these people accountable um, because they have protections that are actually very important, even if they might work against the public interest in this case in particular. So before we wrap up, Josie, let's talk a little bit more about this rather extraordinary speech that Bill Barr made. He, uh, I want to hear your thoughts about what he said about jails. And then also, let's just touch a little bit about this attack he launched on progressive prosecutors across the country. I was surprised by that because the Trump administration in other guises has been in favor of criminal justice reform, and it kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Right. Uh, and yet, this is the same Bill Barr who wrote the case for mass incarceration right, um, right. in 1992. So I guess we were seeing that part of his history come uh, show its colors. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing you can say for Bill Barr is that he is consistent. Um, he's been sort of one of these architects of mass incarceration since his first stint as attorney general in the early 90s. Um, and he has just kind of consistently, even when all the evidence has demonstrated otherwise, argued that more prisons, more people in prison is a good thing. Longer sentences are a good thing. Ma- um, mandatory minimums are a good thing. Uh, putting juven- Charging juveniles as adults is a good thing. Um, it, he He's really sort of an antiquated, almost barbaric understanding of of the criminal justice system. And it's a little terrifying that he's the attorney general. But I found his comments, particularly about the jails um, and Jeffrey Epstein's death, to be so illuminating because he... He, he expressed surprise. He said the people who are responsible for this will be held accountable. Um, but he's actually responsible for this, right? He runs the Department of Justice. He oversees the system. It is under his um, jurisdiction to to be accountable for the way that people are treated and and the oversight that people get in prisons. And the fact that he demonstrated surprise is either completely disingenuous or deeply, deeply ignorant of the system that he should be watching. I thought uh, the progressive prosecutor comments were also just so symbolic of the culture war that the Trump administration repeatedly tries to stoke. The idea that progressive prosecutors are a threat to public safety is, again, just completely 
disproven by the evidence where in places like Chicago under Kim Fox, uh, prosecutions are down and crime is down in places like Philly and Boston, where prosecutors have said, listen, we don't want to focus on the low level stuff. We want police to actually be able to focus on serious crimes um, that need to be addressed and and where people need to be held accountable versus wasting resources and time on over prosecuting and overcharging people for small offenses. The idea that this is so offensive to Bill Barr's um, entire kind of perspective is such a sign that he is a danger to any efforts at criminal justice reform and really puts into question whether or not this administration actually does care about criminal justice reform in any sort of real way when it doesn't isn't scoring them sort of immediate political points. As we tape on Thursday, the world ec- economy is is all over the place. Things are wildly gyrating. Signals are being signaled in all kinds of directions. We have big recession signs coming out of Germany, which is one of the world's largest economies. China also seems to be in the midst of some kind of upheaval and potential contraction. Uh, there has been a dreaded inverted yield curve, which is one of those uh, phrases that economics writers love to use, which I vaguely understand, but is this inver- inverted yield curve is a strong signal of a coming recession. Um, and this coming potential recession is a function partly of the fact that we've had a very long economic expansion and and economies are cyclical, and so it shouldn't be surprising that you would end up with some kind of recession someday, but also the sense that there is real trouble afoot between the United States and China, the world's two largest economies, notably because President Trump has taken a very aggressive stance around China's behavior and has brought all kinds of tariff proposals to the table, some of which he's implemented, some of which he hasn't. And this past week, the Trump administration labeled China a currency manipulator, complained that China was not doing its fair share in buying U.S. agricultural products that they expected the Chinese to buy. And then finally, the president proposed new tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods and then retreated from those tariffs when it became clear that the economic markets and that the chamber of commerce types were not very happy about those tariffs. So there's a lot going on. It's very complicated. The president seems to be, um, as is his want, putting gasoline where there can be gasoline put and matches lit where matches can be lit. Um, But I will start with a, a different kind of question for you, Josie, which is if a recession is coming, should Democrats wish for it? I do not think that Democrats should wish for a recession. Um, I think that recessions tend to hurt the working people, people who um, are already struggling. And so we don't want to encourage, you know, we don't want to encourage more economic tragedy for people who are already in the midst of it. But that being said, I, I think that like the economy is obviously President Trump's sort of main main weapon in this upcoming election, right? And the idea that um, it could be at risk kind of presents a different playing field for Democrats as we approach 2020 um, and as this election comes up. And I think his his willingness to put that to kind of, his willingness to sort of encourage um, the risk of a recession um, in light of that is, you know, this man is, I, I can't say I have, anything in common with President Trump. So I can never totally understand what he's, uh, his, he's thinking, but I, I find it, I, pr- I find it surprising and, and puzzling. You find what surprising and puzzling? Well, that- he's gotten, 
You mean like that he's taking on China in this yeah, way just that just seems to be such risky, a gamble? right? Exactly, and to risk sort of his the the number one the number one thing he has going into the going into 2020. Right. Well, I think he got himself into this uh, kind of mano a mano with China and the notion that he has to show American dominance as part of his America first agenda. And either he believed that he had more leverage than he seems to have over China or he just like is blustering his way through it without a whole lot of forethought. You know, it seems to me that there is an argument for being more aggressive toward China economically. Like, they are doing some things with, um, you know, not being cognizant of American intellectual property rights. And the problem of, like, our jobs going overseas, which is not just a Chinese problem, but is partially related to the changing economy and the way in which China's rising might has an effect on us. Like, all of those issues seem like they are worth rethinking as both um, the sort of Trump brand of protectionism is doing and then also some of the candidates in the Democratic field like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been talking about. What I find just incredibly unstrategic is the idea that this is going to be the U.S. versus China rather than the U.S. trying to make a lot of um, alliances with other countries in trying to contain China and get China to behave itself better. We are just not I don't see what's in it for the rest of the world when the Trump administration has alienated so many other countries and treated them poorly on, you know, economic fronts. I don't get what's going to be in it for them to be on our side, um, given the the sort of other relationship tearing up that's going on. And that just seems like super counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, this trade gets to all kinds of Trump's weaknesses. One is that his tendency to see everything as a zero-sum problem to solve as real estate developers tend to and as he in particular seems to and trade isn't zero-sum trade is one of these things where in fact if it if done well and done correctly everyone benefits or or the benefits are widespread and and help lots and lots of people and so he he's unable to think about trade in a kind of cogent way his objections to trade don't align with the same with the objections that democrats have to to free trade. He's not really concerned about the environmental impacts of trade. He's not concerned about the labor impacts of trade. Um, it's really just sort of like a balance sheet. Like they're, they're exporting more stuff to us than they're taking of ours. And that's bad because that's just bad. It, it comes without, as you say, Emily, it comes without strategy. It comes without brain work. I'm not clear that the, what the Democrats want to do is so great either. I, I, when I look back, I think there's such a missed opportunity in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was exactly what you described, which was this trade deal, this elaborate trade deal, which did not include China and which created this, this strong architecture of free trade among lots and lots of other countries in the Pacific um, that would have knitted the U.S. to other countries uh, in the Pacific Rim in a very useful way in which we we abandon and which you can't find even a modicum of support from anywhere uh, left or right these days, which is a which is a real problem. Do you think, Emily, that that as a political issue, Democrats should be should be supporting the president on tariffs or should be supporting being hard on China? Or do you think that they should stay away from that even if they agree with it? I mean, I think there's some justification for that initial round of tariffs. I now think we've just like the the, the Trump administration is going way too far and that the hurting of the American economy is um, 
a serious issue right now. I mean, also, you know, every economist keeps patiently trying to explain that it is American consumers who pay the cost of the tariffs, not the Chinese economy, and that they are not the right tool for trying to get what we want from China in in terms of China um, rethinking, redoing some of what it does. So, no, I don't think the Democrats should be supporting these tariffs because they're, you know, hurting American companies and American farmers, and they don't seem to be accomplishing the the Trump goal. Josie, what do you think? Should Democrats be aligning with the president on tariffs or should or what should their attitude be towards his his kind of yo-yo tariffing? You know, this has been something that Trump has just been obsessed with um, for decades, right? When you read interviews with him in the late 80s, early 90s, his entire perspective, and I think what you said is totally right, that it's sort of this real estate mindset of zero sum. His entire perspective has long been that, you know, Americans are getting um, are getting screwed on trade, getting screwed um and I mean, it, we should be increasing tariffs. And this is like a long, you know, a long kind of obsession of his. It does not strike me that this is a way to address um, that the issues that he has with China are that are, are legitimate. I, I do not think that the Democrats should be supporting these. In fact, I think the Democrats need to be running on a much stronger platform of protecting American workers and American consumers um, in a way that the Republican Party has has sort of abandoned, um, given who is at the helm of it. I, ha- I should say that everything I know about economics, I've learned from Emily's son. So um, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. How much. Speaking of, we can preview our sharenting uh, discussion <laughs> by saying that Josie and my son, Simon, have a very sweet relationship on Twitter that has nothing to do with me. It's basically just him <laughs> teaching me things and me saying, Simon, I know that you are like half my age, but I need you to teach me this complicated concept. And he always does it very quickly. I learned more from him than I did from <laughs> AP Economics. So I'm very grateful. Huh. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not allowed to retweet all of this per my husband's policies. <laughs> anyway. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. That was, is there any <laughs> What, how can you possibly follow that? <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. So let's go to cocktail chatter. When when you are looking for a low-priced Chinese imported beer and you can't find <laughs> it because of the dang tariffs and you have to have a high-priced <clears throat> European imported beer instead, 
What will you be chattering about, Emily? There is just this explosion of amazing reporting going on this month about our country's relationship to race, in particular, um, the history of slavery and all the problems that came out of it for um, African-Americans. So I'm talking about an amazing story in The Atlantic called The Great Land Robbery by Van Newkirk II. Um, I think Josie can be part of this victory lap since she (laughs) is uh, close with Van and a former colleague of his. Uh, But this is, you know, I think part of filling in the history that Ta-Nehisi Coates started telling in his piece for The Atlantic years ago about reparations. What Van is writing about is this problem of black property ownership being wiped out, particularly in southern and midwestern states on farms by fights over title. There was also a powerful New Yorker article about this, a New Yorker ProPublica collaboration recently. So that's totally worth reading. Uh, My magazine at the New York Times has done this amazing project that's going up in the print magazine, in the paper, online. It's called 1619. It's about all the incredibly important ways that the history of Black people first coming to this country brought here as slaves in 1619 have unfolded and um, affected every single part of American politics and society and culture. Just this big project that has turned out incredibly well that many of my colleagues at The Times worked really hard for. So I recommend that. And then NPR's Throughline podcast, which is about history, has this great episode about mass incarceration and the history of mass incarceration, uh, which I also really recommend. And it's really kind of tracing through how race relations and racism have affected where we have gotten with mass incarceration. It's a topic I thought I knew a lot about. I learned a ton listening to this podcast, and I'm glad to be like a very tiny part of the last part about American prosecutors. These are hard, difficult topics, but they are so important for understanding everything about American history and democracy. So we should all be feasting on them this month. Josie, what is your chatter? So I just want to say I, I also just in, have enjoyed so much. I haven't heard the podcast yet, but the 1619 live stream the other night was just incredible. And um, Van's story has, um, I just am so proud and I think it's amazing. I am loving Gia Tolentino's new book, Trick Mirror, which I thought um, might be something that not everybody had heard of yet, but it's number two on the bestseller list this week. So I, I might be behind and letting everybody know how great I think it is but it's just Gia is just like nah it's worth it, it I'm is. glad you're calling that one out it's so great and Gia is just such an incredible writer she has um, just the sharpest observation skills is, I mean, she has sharpest observations about being a woman um, in America about being sort of a millennial about what it means to grow up uh, as someone whose job is to give opinions as she as she put it um, and I I have just loved every single page of this book it's really really great so I highly recommend it there's a chapter in there about a reality TV show she was on as a teenager that makes the entire book worth it um, on its own so uh, definitely definitely check it out what was the reality TV show? It was like a reality TV show on a station called Noggin that I remember because they used to play um, Degrassi reruns, which was like a Canadian teen soap opera. Um, and the TV, it, they went to a they went to an island. They did different challenges. It was like teens living on an island, basically. I don't. I'm not totally sure what the ultimate point of it was, but this was 2004, sort of you know, in the beginning of the 
explosion of reality TV and just reading about her entire experience, both deciding to go on a reality TV show as a high schooler and then um, like what it was like to tape it and the drama and keeping in touch with the people that she was with um, after, you know, now 15 years later. It's just hilarious and kind of sad and stressful and beautifully written. I just want to also chime in to say that Gia's interview on long form was so good. It has great advice for young writers in it um, toward the beginning. And I just love her way of thinking about the things she was good at and felt confident about and then the things that she's sort of still feeling her way towards as a journalist. She's like incredibly self-aware. And I just thought it was like the best advice for a developing young writer I'd heard in a while. Wow. That's high praise indeed. Yeah, and I definitely need to hear that. I need the advice, so I'll be listening to that on my vacation. <laughs> we all need. Yeah, it was good advice for all of us, honestly. My chatter, or two two quick chatters. One is I would point you to an NPR photo essay about, uh, it's called Separate and Unequal Schools, and it's a photo essay where they sent photographers to school districts that are right next to each other but are vastly different because of the level of funding uh, the the nature of the community that the school serves and the photos are shocking and it's it's real evidence of how just a very small difference in geography combined with class and race and public policy decisions can can create totally different outcomes and opportunities for children the the photos it's 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 very as as someone i saw on twitter uh it's very east dylan uh West Dillon from the Friday Night Lights, where if you remember that show, there's this kind of one school has nothing and the other school has everything. And, you know, you have the one school district where there are laptops on every desk and the other school district where they're using uh, school books from the 1950s that are that are in tatters and where the paint is peeling off the walls. It's very, very demoralizing and should be a, a real wake up to the way we're the way we don't give true opportunity to people in this country, to children in this country. The other chatter I want to do is totally self-serving. I'm in my brother's house. My brother's John Plotz. He's the the smarter Plotz brother, the wiser Plotz brother, the funnier Plotz brother. So uh, take that for what it's worth. (laughs) Better in every way. (laughs) He's better in every way, except uh, he's shorter than I am. um, And he's older than I am. So, uh, so oh, good. I'm glad you're pointing those really important attributes out. That's definitely <laughs> crucial. But in, in anything that really matters, uh, John is superior. And he has a podcast, which is called Recall This Book. He's a, he's a professor of English literature, and it's an interview podcast where he talks to usually writers about particular books. And this episode he has this past, uh, past month is it's an interview with Shishen Liu, who's the author of The Three-Body Problem, which is this amazing science fiction novel well series of novels and he's this uh, chinese science fiction author who is uh, so deep and so complicated and has has led such an interesting and strange life and uh, john has this wonderful interview with him about philosophy about science fiction about uh, literature it's um it's wonderful so check out recall this book's interview with uh, shi shen lu we also of course are collecting your listener chatters dear listeners and there's a a rich vein of listener chatter this week. I I was down a rabbit hole for about 40 minutes following links that you sent us and please keep sending them to us. Tweet at us uh, at, at Slate Gabfest. And 
the story that I really caught my fancy was sent to us by Matt Thompson at Thompson MW 1983. And it was an LA Times article about the Coast Guard's only icebreaker. So you could say, given what's happening with global warming, maybe we don't need icebreakers, but (laughs) Soviets have or the Russians have 11, 11 icebreakers and the U- United States military, which is spending, you know, ungodly sums of money all the time has just won. It's incredibly old. It's, it's certainly older than Josie. It's probably almost as old as you, Emily. It's not quite as old as me. And it's it, the poor boat. <laughs> it just barely can float and barely can break ice. And it's just, you know, the sewage is spilling everywhere. And it's just about what happens when you neglect something, which is, um, which is important. And, and it's also about these sailors or these Coast Guard officers who are trying to keep this poor boat going. And it's a really very funny, sad and lovely story about a form of icebreaker neglect. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is, of course, Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. And June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. For Emily Bazelon and Josie Duffy-Rice, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Please come to our live show in St. Paul, Minnesota, September 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get tickets to that show. And Emily and I, and I think John, will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You might be on vacation, Slate Plus. And if you're on vacation, you might be on vacation with, say, your children. And if you're on vacation with your children, you might have taken a scenic picture of your child on a water slide. Or perhaps your child uh, with a farm animal at the farm that you were visiting. Or child on a hike. And you're faced with a question, which is, do I share that picture? How broadly do I share that picture? With whom do I share that picture? You're facing the dilemma, which apparently is called sharenting. And here to explain Sherentine and tell tell us why Sherentine is good or bad are Josie and Emily. I'm too old to have Sherented <laughs> anything. Actually, that's not true. I've Sherented a lot well, now that I think about it. Hannah, my wife, has Sherented all these yeah, stories about I, our children, and I hate it when she does that, but so it goes. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, we got to hear more about that. But we should also say that part of the reason we thought of this topic is that there was a recent article, I think, in the Times in which some kids whose images have been shared a lot by their parents were pushing back and saying, hey, this wasn't a choice that we made. Um, Josie, I am dying to hear what you think about this because <laughs> your son's pictures on your social media feed, like, make my day. He is but a toddler. Um, so I wonder, you know... You obviously have made the choice to share a lot of images of him. Do you set limits? Do you feel like this is something you'll stop doing when he hits a certain age? Like, tell us your thinking about this. It's funny because when I saw that video on The Times, I was just picturing my son who is can't even really speak yet. He's 22 months, but he um, certainly seems like he's going to have this sort of personality where he gets annoyed with his mother easily. I could see already him... Um, getting mad at me about sharing pictures of him. You know, it like wasn't really a conversation. My husband's also a journalist. It's not really a conversation we really had. My husband definitely shares less in general than I do. Um, But I do think the older that he gets, and I see this a lot online of people sharing stuff that's kind of cute now, but later will probably be embarrassing, right, for their kids. Um, Every single sort of misstatement or or, or, um, like cute but embarrassing thing that their, their kids did. And I imagine that like it's so difficult to have any control over your public your public 
persona um, if everybody knows about you or, you know, if everybody's been sort of watching you publicly for forever. So I, I might need to tone it down. Um, but, you know, the other thing I always think about with my son is the, the I don't know if it's the trade off, but the accompaniment to that is just how much of a um, history he's going to have of his childhood that like I didn't have like my, you know, my parents didn't take a ton of pictures of me. My grandma took some, but you know, there were like, what, 20 pictures of me per year growing up, maybe max. And then my son has like 20 pictures a day. He's going to know exactly everything he did every single second of every single day. And uh, probably so will a lot of other people if I don't um, stop posting cute pictures of him. But he is very cute. But He is so I gotta cute. Say, I gotta but say. he would know that whether you, sh- you share it or not, right? I mean, because you're t- going to take the pictures whether or not you share them. Yes, definitely. Then that's, the sharing is not a critical part to the pictures. I'm just hopefully when he's mad at me later, I can tell him that this was <laughs> there are pluses too. Um, and I think it gets it gets it's weird. Like the more that um, I've now had people kind of who are angry about my work or the work of the appeal. Um, that was just a know, snippet like, from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Gabfest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Slate. 